Thank you, Joel, for that beautiful piece on communion and for the worship team for leading us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for a brand new year and a brand new sermon series. Thank you for what you've taught us over the fall and over December and what we're looking forward to now. And God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to every one of us, that we would see how your Son, Jesus Christ, changes everything and be encouraged by that. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. How do you respond to temptation? How do you respond when you do a side job for a friend and they offer you some cash and you go, well, the government already takes enough of my money. Do they really need that much more? How do you respond when you're looking through social media or you watch something on TV and you think, wow, that person's really attractive. I wonder if there's more pictures of him or her that I could look at. How do you respond when someone's new to Edmonton and doesn't know how to drive in the winter and you want to tell them how to do so? I once heard it said, whoever drives slower than you is an idiot. Whoever drives faster than you is a moron. That's probably about right. (laughs) This past fall, I was reading a novel and there was this great temptation. It was an interesting premise. There was a criminal mastermind and he looked for people who were a little bit down on their luck who were in rough circumstances, but were really genuinely good people, and he would approach them. And he said, if I told you I could fix the lottery and guarantee that you will win, will you accept my offer? This particular person that the book is about is about 25, 30 years old, a a single woman who's living in a common law relationship, and she's wrestling with it. And for the first 100 pages of this novel, you can sense this inner tension, this inner turmoil, Am I allowed to do this? It's not right, but is it wrong? Somebody has to win anyways. It may as well be me. And slowly she starts to justify it a little bit. You know, my boyfriend's kind of a loser. He's addicted to drugs. He hasn't been helpful. And I'm just going to end up in this horrible cycle that my mom ended in before me. She ended up with a loser. I'm going to end up with a loser. My daughter's going to end up with a loser. And so eventually she goes, you know what? I'm going to do it. There might be strings attached, but it's not worth it. If this guy can guarantee me $100 million, I'm all in. We might not have the opportunity to be handed the winning ticket to the Powerball, but how do you respond to temptation? Nine days into a new year, are you still uh, filling out your diet and exercise program? Are you thinking, this is the year I'm going to be serious about reading the Bible, but there's another really good show on Netflix? How do we respond to temptation? If you have your Bibles open in front of you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. If you're brand new to church, there's Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. If you're watching online, you can grab your smartphone or your tablet and download this app and follow along with us. The Bible can be a little bit confusing. uh, Thankfully, there's a table of contents. Luke is in the New Testament, meaning it talks about the birth of Jesus and everything that follows afterwards. And this is a good time, as you're flipping open, for me to tell you about my Christmas present this year. And so I have a kind of a boring Christmas list. I asked for a couple of novels. I asked for a couple of tools. I asked for some gift cards so I could take my wife out on a date. And my wife looked at this list and she goes, too boring. You know what my husband needs? My husband needs more pillows. I was like, are you kidding me? I don't know what your house looks like, but the last thing my house needs is more blankets and more pillows. But then I open up my present, and this is what it says. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. 
the small numbers are the verse numbers. And so if you come to my office at any point, now it will be abundantly clear for all who are present. <laughs> Luke chapter four, picking up right in verse one. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke are the birth narrative. We went through them all of December, and it was signs to the Savior. Last week, David had kind of that transition message about the baptism of Jesus. Today, the beginning of chapter four concludes that little piece about the preparation for Jesus' ministry. If you missed last week, here's kind of a, a, a summary of what took place. John the Baptist, not to be confused with John the disciple, is Jesus' cousin, and he's preparing people for the coming of Jesus. At first glance, John is a little bit of an odd duck. The gospel writer Matthew describes him this way. John's clothes are made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He kind of sounds like the crazy guy you would see at the LRT station saying, repent for the end is near. But people aren't running away from John. People are running towards John. He's out in the wilderness living this bit of a monastic lifestyle and people are leaving Jerusalem, leaving the cities to see what this man has to say. And they are amazed at his teaching. And they're captured by what he's saying. And they recognize there's something better out there. There's something better available. People's lives are being transformed. They're confessing their sins and being baptized in the Jordan River. And then one day, somebody enters the scene. And I can imagine this big crowd of people listening to John and he just stops. And people turn to look at what he's looking at. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world I testify to you today, this is the Son of God. David's passage last week ended with Luke 3, 21 and 22, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so here is Jesus at the beginning of Luke chapter four, anointed by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and he's about to complete his preparation for ministry. And the first teaching point this moment is this. Temptation is not a sin. Temptation in and of itself is not a sin. The author of Hebrews says this. We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just like us, yet was without sin. It's not a sin to see that attractive person and say, wow, they're really attractive. It's not a person to go through the grocery line and go to the checkout and be like, man, it would be so easy to steal this. It's not a sin to be tempted with something. The sin happens when you follow up on that idea. When you think, I wonder how much more I can learn about that individual and what else could happen? Is the grocery store really going to miss this apple if I just throw it in my bag? If I just follow through with this, what's the worst that could take place? And when we think about temptations and how often we're tempted, it's amazing to me that here is Jesus, the Son of God, out in the desert, out in the wilderness, it's the exact same word, and he's there for 40 days, tempted not just these three times, but over and over and over again. And he never submits to the temptation. 
Not for the 40 days, but not for his entire life. It's a total game changer. St. Augustine says the number 40 is associated with hardship, with affliction, and with punishment. We see this number 40 regularly in the scriptures, right? At the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, the flood lasted for 40 days. The prophet Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, you have 40 days to repent. Another prophet, Ezekiel, lies on his side for 40 days, representing the punishment that is going to come upon Judah. And while these are all interesting examples, I want to turn your attention to this. Jesus' temptation in the desert parallels Israel's temptation in the desert. Both are tempted by physical comforts. Both are tempted by false worship. Both are tempted to test God. It starts in verses three and four. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. For the note takers in the room, the outline this morning is going to be really simple, walking through those three physical temptations. Now, certainly there are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. And I'm grateful for Peter, one of the followers of Jesus. And he's writing about Paul, another follower of Jesus. And this is what Peter says. Paul writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in all these sorts of matters. His letters contain some things that are pretty difficult to understand. Okay, so it's not just us that have a hard time. The temptation isn't to eat bread. It's totally okay to eat bread. The temptation is questioning whether or not God will take care of your physical comforts. Take a look at the verse in front of you. What's the very first thing Satan says to Jesus? If. If you are the son of God. Not because you are the son of God or as the son of God or since you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. The very first thing he does, his very first tactic, and we're going to see not just three temptations, but three tactics in these temptations, is Satan questions Jesus' identity. And I really love how the response takes place. Our identity determines our biography. Our identity determines our biography. What you believe about yourself is going to determine how you live. And we see these beautifully rich parallels that take place between Jesus and between the nation of Israel. The hand of God is upon both of them. And over the course of December, we saw the hand of God pointing to the sign of the Savior, pointing to Jesus. An angel shows up to Mary, shows up to the priest Zachariah, shows up to Joseph. A plethora of angels show up to the shepherds at night. We see the prophecies become fulfilled. A virgin with child, born in the city that was written about hundreds of years ago. We see the wisdom of a young Jesus astounding the seasoned priests. We also see the hand of God with Israel. God has raised up a young boy to be a savior and rescue the people up out of Egypt. We see miracle after miracle after miracle, 10 in all, as God takes the nation of Israel out of Egypt, crosses the Red Sea, and destroys Pharaoh's army behind them. But Israel doesn't respond anywhere close to how Jesus responds. In Exodus chapter 14, we read the story of Israel crossing the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army being destroyed. In Exodus chapter 15, we see Moses and the nation of Israel giving praise to God. In Exodus chapter 16, grumbling. 
The Israelites said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Do you really think that's God's plan? You think God thought to himself, you know what would be funny? If I did the greatest rescue mission this world has ever seen, if I show my power, if I show my strength, if I show my might, if I show all of Egypt and all of Israel how powerful I am, and then on the other side, I just let my people perish. Probably not the case. But it's what the people thought. That's their perception. Where are you, God? Do you even see us? Do you know what we're going through? Do you know how difficult this is? Do you recognize that we're hungry here? And Jesus, just like Israel, is tempted by hunger, is tempted by physical comforts. And the temptation for Jesus is to use his power rather than to rely on God. Jesus understands that God allowed Israel to hunger so that he can see where is their trust, where is their hope, what are they looking for? And Jesus recognizes he himself is allowed to hunger to recognize and see that his trust is fully in God alone. And Jesus understands our identity determines our biography. It impacts how we live and how we view ourselves and what our relationship with God is like. So then Satan comes back with a second temptation, one of false worship. This is verses five to eight. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. It's been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, all of this will be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only, shall, only him shall you serve. There's no mountain or place high enough to see all the kingdoms of the world. So most commentators believe it was a vision, a revelation that Satan gave to Jesus. And whether Satan could ever meet this promise, it doesn't really matter. It's the temptation itself that's so tantalizing. Would you like unlimited power? Would you like to have more and more money so you never have to worry about anything? Would you like to have the authority that whatever you say goes? I can give all of this to you. It sounds pretty good. The tactic, will you transfer your allegiance to me? One of the joys I have in teaching is that I get to study the scriptures and you realize there's layer after layer of things to discuss. And you could pick up the Bible and you could look at Luke 4, 1 to 13 and you could know exactly what this is about. And then you could dive a little bit deeper and see the parallels between Jesus and Israel and dive a little bit deeper and recognize all of Jesus' answers come from the same book. All of Jesus' answers are from Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel has been wandering around the desert for about 40 years. After Exodus, you have Leviticus, then you have Numbers. Deuteronomy, they're on the doorstep of the promised land. Finally, a generation has passed. Those who weren't following or even close to being obedient to God, they're all dead. And so now we get to enter the promised land. And Moses stands up and he gives a few sermons. And it's from this book that Jesus preaches. When Satan tempts Jesus to worship him, Jesus references Deuteronomy chapter six. And that might not mean a whole lot to me and to you, but it meant a ton to the people of Israel. Because the Jews knew in Deuteronomy 6, at that portion of the scroll, 
It was when Moses gave to Israel the greatest commandment known as the Shema. And a faithful Jew would actually say the Shema twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And they knew Jesus' response came from chapter six. He wasn't quoting the Shema. He quoted a couple verses later in 13 and 14. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people around you. You can probably guess how the Israelites responded. Not nearly as well as Jesus did. So Exodus chapter 16, they cry out to God and they say, God, just feed us. Give us our physical comforts. A short time later, they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is when Moses goes onto the mountain, receives the 10 commandments of God and brings them down to the nation of Israel. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the temptation to worship other gods. Uh, the second commandment, we're right there. You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. These commandments sound good to the people of Israel and Moses, his brother Aaron, and a few other people go up and they affirm this covenant. One thing leads to another. There's some more laws given from God to the people of Israel. And then God says, hey Moses, I need to talk to you again. And Moses goes up on the top of the mountain for 40 days. It's about a month. And the nation of Israel is going, where did Moses go? Has God abandoned us already? Is Moses gone? Is God abandoning us? What are we going to do next? And Aaron says, I've got an idea. Let's take all of our gold, all of our jewelry, melt it down, build a calf. We'll worship it just like the people in Egypt do. And the nation of Israel goes, that's a great idea. We should totally do that. And Jesus is going and living through this and saying, we do not worship other gods. That is not what we should do. And though he was tempted in every way, just as we are, he is without sin. Where we have fallen short, where we have fallen to that temptation, Jesus says, live, I have lived a holy and perfect life on your behalf. It is by my righteousness, it is by my perfection that you receive my inheritance and have life everlasting, and that's a game changer. This past week, my two little kids had finished destroying the kitchen, so then they decided to move on somewhere else to destroy another part of our house. And my wife and I were left with our eight-year-old son, and somehow we got onto the topic of false worship. Don't ask me how we got there. I honestly don't remember. But my son, who just turned eight two weeks ago, said to me, Dad, Mom, why would people worship an idol? Why would people worship something made of wood or of stone? So we looked at him and we said, hey, what do you spend all your time thinking about? All your time wanting to do? And he goes, oh, YouTube and video games. We said, okay, and somebody gave you some money for Christmas. What are you going to spend that money on? He goes, oh, the next Mario game. And then we said to him, how much do you think about Jesus? And even at eight years old, you could see the wheels turning, and he goes, not very much. And the truth is, it's a lot easier for me to tell a story about my eight-year-old son than it is to tell a story about myself. John Calvin 
a 16th century theologian, has a great quote, and he says, the human heart is an idol factory. We're created to worship something. For what it's worth, I often use this quote when I share the gospel with friends. We're going to worship something. Are you going to worship the corporate ladder? And I have to get higher and higher up. Why? So I can have more and more power. So I can have more and more money. What do you worship? Do you worship family? Money? Video games? Rest? Comfort? Education? Wisdom? Being better than that guy? We all worship something. And Satan doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not God. He's not asking to worship him. He's saying, just worship something. I don't care. I just don't want you thinking about God. What Jesus understands, what this passage is reminding us of, is that as followers of Jesus, our identity is rooted in God. Our identity determines our biography. And as sons and daughters, as a great high king, we have something offered to us that this world cannot match. Satan's not finished. Picking up in verse nine, he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on the hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is also said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's the final test. Temptation, pardon me, testing God. How many of us fall into this temptation, especially when things go bad? God, are you out there? God, can you hear me? God, do you know what it is I'm going through? God, if you're really out there, then take away this sickness. God, if you're really out there, then bring me a spouse. God, if you're really out there, then do something. Prove to me that you're real. But he's not a slave to be bossed around. He is the king of the universe. And he knows exactly what it is that we need. Some of our prayers are answered, some of them are not, but we do not put the Lord our God to the test. Most people believe that Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. The temple was a beautiful building. It's, unfortunately, it's no longer fully built, but it's uh, stood about 200 feet high on the corner of Jerusalem. You might remember Jerusalem is built on a hill. Beneath the hill is a 250-foot drop to the Kidron Valley. Jesus standing with Satan over top of a 450-foot drop. And Satan saying, will you jump? God will protect you. Psalm 91 says it will. If you jumped off the top of Ellerslie, you'd probably get bruised, maybe roll your ankle, but I think you'd be okay. 450 feet, I had to figure out how high that was. It's the same height as the Telus building downtown. A big jump. When Satan is looking at Jesus, he tempts him in a different way each time. Not only is the temptation different, so is the tactic. What is your identity? Who will you plead your allegiance to? You know, the Bible says exactly what I'm saying. For those of you who weren't around over the summer, we did a summer series called Misquoted. Common phrases that people think are in the Bible are misquoted from the Bible or twisted from the Bible. 
And this is exactly what Satan is doing here. Satan quotes Psalm 91 verbatim. It is absolutely the same, but he twists it. To properly quote a film from The Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya says, I do not think that means what you think that means. <laughs> and once again, Jesus passes where Israel failed. We have already seen Israel complain about physical comforts. We've already seen them enter false worship. They also put God to the test. Back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord your God to the test? But the people were thirsty for water here and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us, uh, to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? It's not that different than us. The Israelites are saying, hey God, thirsty over here, do something about it. And we're crying out too, God, I've got bills to pay. Give me a job already. God, do you see how lonely I am? Do you not know that I want a spouse? Do you not know that I want good friends to hang out with? God, how long is this pandemic going to last? Two years already? Just end this thing by now. Jesus responds to Satan, just like the first one, just like the second one, comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa, which is what he's referring to in Exodus 17. Our passage closes with verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The temptation of Jesus is a well-known passage. And if you grew up in church, you've probably familiar with this passage. Maybe you've heard it taught on and you know, okay, I know exactly what Dave is going to say next. And he's going to talk about the importance of memorizing scripture and how good it is to memorize scripture and how to fight temptation with the memory of scripture. And you might even be thinking, oh, is he going to go to Ephesians chapter six and talk about the sword of the spirit and that being the only offensive part of the armor of God and to recognize that Satan, when he comes to us, we got to fight back. And there's incredible value in the memory of scripture. There's incredible value in understanding the scriptures and studying the scriptures and recognizing this is how I use the scriptures. And I think it's incredibly important to memorize. I think it's incredibly important to memorize. And I've heard sermons on this two or three different times. I usually listen to a sermon to try to think about what people are talking about. And I think they're all wrong. I don't think that's what the passage is about at all. What do you think it's about? When you read these 13 verses, and when you look at what Jesus says and interacts with, with him, what do you think this passage is about? It's not a trick question. I'm not trying to be clever. I'm asking you to dig deep because you're going to open the Bible. You're going to read Luke. You might read along with us during the sermon series. What? is this about? Is this passage about when we face temptation, respond with memorization of scripture? Or is this passage about what the author of Hebrews says? Jesus, though he faced the same temptations we faced, is without sin. 
Jesus, um, what happened to Jesus in the desert is parallels what happened to Israel in the desert. But there's something else that's going on here as well. Not only does Jesus parallel what happened to Israel in the desert, Jesus also parallels what happens to Adam in the garden. And in the opening chapters of Genesis, we are introduced to Adam and his wife Eve. And Adam is in the garden and it is absolutely perfect. He has a great relationship to his wife. There is no death, there is no decay, there is no problems. He gets to walk with God. And who comes up to, to Adam other than Satan himself? And what's the temptation? Would you like to be like God? And Adam says, sure would. Eats of the fruit and sin enters the world. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he ended up in the garden of Gethsemane and he faced the worst temptation he has ever had. And he prays at the end of the gospels, you can read about it. God, not my will, but your will be done. Take this cup Take this temptation away from me. Allow me to just walk away from sacrificing myself. But he doesn't. He doesn't fall to temptation like Adam did all those years before him. And what is the result of that? While Adam brought sin into the world, Jesus says, I'm going to rescue the world from sin. And I thought back this past week about being a young adult and sitting in a pew, much like you're sitting in a pew right now and thinking, God, what went through my head when I heard this sermon? And I can tell you with great certainty, this is what went through my head. God, I want to know the scriptures. I want to memorize the scriptures. I want to be familiar with the scriptures. And when, when I'm tempted, I want to be able to respond with the scriptures, but I don't know where to start. And preacher man, tell me what to do. Two thoughts. One, be a part of a community group. So whether you join Alpha, whether you join Ladies Morning Out, whether you fill out a connecting card in the pew racks in front of you or for those who are online, to fill out an online connecting card and to be a part of community. But two, if you're thinking, Dave, what's a good verse? Where do I start? Start with this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will set your path straight. And I tested it by two people this past week. And I asked them, have you heard sermons on this? And they said, yeah. And I said, what was your first response? And I said, well, I don't know what verse to memorize. I said, okay, what else went through your head? And they said, it felt, it felt kind of heavy. Well, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I've already said, I don't think this passage is about memorizing scripture as great as that is but it's about Jesus in the face of temptation did not sin. So then what does this mean? What happens every step of the way with Jesus? As the son of God, I know there's something better for me. Our identity determines our biography. And because of Jesus' perfection in following God, it has changed the world. We are freed from sin, and that's a game changer, and that's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you for the reminder that your son faces every temptation that we face and yet is without sin. Thank you, God, that you are in control, that you are holy, that you are perfect, and that you know what is best. 
God, we pray that you would forgive us for when we have failed and have fallen into temptation. And in the same way you filled Jesus with your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we would stand firm in the face of temptation, knowing that our identity is as children of God and that you have something so much better to offer us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.